Well, good evening, Genesis. I'm, uh, I'm pretty pumped about the third service. This is only my second time being able to come, but I, I love it. I like, I like being here. This is an exciting thing for me. So thank you for letting me uh, be here. It's such a privilege. Uh, and before I go, before I continue, uh, I'm not walking off stage. Oops. Um, I wanted to give a very particular thank you, and I've been doing this in all the services, and I, and I have to do it tonight as well, is uh, as Michael mentioned, we just had um, a boy, a little boy come into our life, Jack. He's incredible adding to the pool family. We have Abigail as well. It was a year and a half. And um, the congregational care team here at the church has blown us away. Absolutely blown us away. And I mean that. And, and the congregational care team, if you were here, I think it was maybe two, it might have been three weeks ago, um, where uh, the Crossan family basically was, uh, was, was show, sharing, you know, and, and it's such a, such a gift because they've, they've been bringing us meals. I think there's been like eight or nine people now who have driven half an hour north. We live north of Beverly uh, and who have given us full course meals. I'm talking about some real deal, good food. It's been, it's been great. <laughs> uh, but we're, we're, we're very thankful for this church. It, it's, a, it's a very practical, a very tangible way to see that our church is alive, that this is not just a dead building, but this is an alive building full of people who love one another. So such an incredible thank you to this church. Okay, so tonight I'm in 1 Kings chapter 17. So if you have a Bible Please turn to 1 Kings chapter 17. If you'd like one, by the way, I think we have on both, outside both doors, there's, there's some Bibles out there ready for you. 1 Kings chapter 17. And tonight I want to take you on a journey. I want to tell you a story that took place 2,900 years ago. I want to take you back to a time when the days are not good. Back to a time when the days are exceptionally dark. To a time when the nation of Israel is in disarray. See, this, this nation chosen by God no longer remembers the cloud. This once mighty nation no longer recalls a divine pillar of fire that led them out of Egypt. This is a people designed to be a light to the nations. But now, some 2,900 years ago, the only word that the Bible can come up with for the conduct of this nation is a whore. A whore to the nations. That's what the Bible calls Israel at this time. Their God is Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of Moses, the, the God who led them out of Egypt. The God of Joshua. The God who destroyed the walls of Jericho with the sound of a trumpet. The God of David completely crushing the Philistines. The God who manifested his presence in Solomon's temple. This God that we worship has been forgotten. And the wayward heart of a nation, the nation of Israel, is cultivating a catastrophe. Irreverence is everywhere. It's ruling the land. You see, the, the kings of the north, the, Israel had been split up into two kingdoms now, the, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, ten tribes and two tribes. The kings in the northern kingdom, they're not doing a good job. They're doing what is evil in the sight of God. And a new king has come. His name is Ahab, and he's awful. He, according to the Bible, is doing more evil than any of the predecessors who had come before him. And let me tell you why. It's because he has married 
a monster. He is bowing down to a stone pole. He has courted, he has married a woman named Jezebel, an enemy of God, an enemy of Israel, and he is worshiping her god, Baal, even building a temple in his name. The king of Yahweh's people, the the leader of the nation of God, is worshiping a false god of his imagination. And he has replaced the true God who created the entire world with a breath. The people of Israel have lost their way. The leadership of Israel has lost their way. Life for this nation seems, excuse me, hopeless. So my question is, where are you, God? Where are you, God? What do you have to say about this? What is your word to your people? Will you allow your king to continue in idolatry? He represents your very name. God, what do you have to say about this? Is your word unfailing? Is it true? Is it relevant? Or is it something that we can just push aside? And let go. Well, these are the kind of questions that we're going to be asking in 1 Kings chapter 17. And it is right here in this story that a mysterious man appears out of nowhere. A prophet of God barges onto the scene for the very first time in all of the Bible. His name is Elijah. Elijah, my God is Yahweh. That's what his name means. My God is the Lord. A name that beckons him to bend down and worship the only God. A name that condemns the idolatrous actions of King Ahab. We meet this fantastic figure in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. Let's read together. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now, it moves really quick, but Elijah has just declared a devastating drought. He is talking to the royal king of Israel, Ahab, a king who will reign for 22 years. Put yourself in his place. You're walking down the stone courts of Ahab's palace, overlooking a vast terrain on the hills of Samaria. And you, and you, you approach the king, you look him square in the eye and declare without hesitation and with a confidence that only comes from God. And you declare an end to the rain, even the dew. How could you do something like that? Well, he must know God is up to something. God must be up to something. You see, God is attacking the very center of the the worship of Baal. This God that Ahab has been bowing down to is a storm God. Among other things, he is a God of the weather. So Ahab, instead of praying to the one God, the true God, he is bowing down to a pole and saying, Oh, Baal, will you bring the rain to us? Oh, Baal, will you nourish our crops? But Yahweh, he will have none of that. Mm -mm. Because you see, because Yahweh alone is the one who will determine when rainfall brings forth lilies. Yahweh alone is the one who will decide when waterfall 
produces barley and bread for your village. And so he does something that every person of every house, of every village, whether you are a saint or a sinner, whether you are in the house of God or the people of God and not in the people of God, he sends a drought by the word of his prophet and it touches everyone. And from here, God propels, he sends Elijah into his ministry as a prophet. We pick up the story in verse 2. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Sherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. Now remember, Elijah has just stormed into Ahab's palace and declared some pretty gutsy information. And the word of God has come down to him, go east, I'll feed you with ravens, and you'll drink from a brook. <laughs> if you're Elijah and you're hearing this, Question. Ravens? <laughs> Ravens? God? Hashtag birds? No, no, no. Their claws can be, they can only be so big, their talons can only carry so much. Bruce Sterling's steak is not what we're talking about here. And that's a good steak, I've had it. We're not talking about fried chicken with mashed potatoes. And I've said this in the other services. I have to, to you know, now, I don't know about you, but I, I prefer white gravy. Maybe you prefer brown. But it, it's not an option. None of this is anywhere to be found. Sweet tea is gone, and I love it. We're not talking about that. We're talking about rodent meat. We're talking about roadkill. And God, what is a brook without any rain? How long would this brook last without any rainfall? But God has directed his prophet to go east, east of the Jordan, and settle and hide himself by the brook, Sherith. And so we continue in verse 5. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook, Sherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And so right here we see that Elijah is immediately obedient. God calls him to a task, and he obeys. His very life depends upon it. But above that and on top of that, God's word is proven true. God said it would happen like this, and it happened like this. God's word proven true. He, he provided for him in the exact way that he said he would. So Elijah now knows when I am doing God's work, it doesn't guarantee me a life of plenty, but it does guarantee me a life of provision. When we are doing God's work, living a life for God, it does not guarantee a life of plenty, but it does guarantee a life of provision. So day by day, night after night, food is there. Water is there, all according to the word of God. Now, several months pass by in the intensity of a desert heat. Several months pass by in the loneliness that accompanies someone east 
of the Jordan all by themselves. And Elijah wakes up today and he notices a change. Something's a little different today. By now he's lost several pounds. His face is thinner. His ribs are beginning to protrude. And today his heart beating faster and faster. And his, and his gut is getting that unsettled reaction. Almost like when you see your bank account dwindle just to a couple bucks. Almost like when you're a father in a single income family and you get fired or laid off. You know that your gut is turned upside down? You know that feeling? That's the feeling he's having this morning because the flow of water is beginning to slow down. The ridges of the brook are beginning to decline. Our prophet's water supply is slipping away day by day and now night after night, less and less water until we read in verse 7. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Again, put yourself there. Put yourself in his place. Isn't your reaction? I know what my reaction is. What? What is this, God? You told him. You told the man of God to go eastward and that you would take care of him out there. What is this? There is no water here. Isn't the same God who can command ravens to bring him food in the morning and at night? Isn't the same God who does that the same God who can continue this brook, who can to make this brook continue to flow? Where are you, God? Why is this happening? Has God's provision failed? Has his word failed? That's a serious question from this story. Elijah is in a desperate place. He's in a, a vulnerable place. And you wonder if his confidence was breaking. You wonder if anxiety was beginning to set in. But it's right here where our story changes direction. In verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Okay. So right in the exact moment where Elijah's circumstances are devouring him, God's word comes again. And he says, Now cross back over the Jordan River and head some 70 miles northwest to the kingdom of Sidon, to the city of of Zarephath. Now this, this city of Zarephath is no ordinary place for the prophet of Israel, for any prophet from Israel. You see, the king that rules the land of Sidon, he does not know our God. He does not respect our God. And his daughter is none other than Jezebel, the enemy of Israel in this time. And Jezebel has married Ahab. So I bet you you can guess what God they worship in Sidon. I bet you you can guess what God they're bowing down to in Zarephath. It's Baal. Baal. God isn't sending his prophet to a random city to be provided for. He's sending his prophet to a very specific place, 
to enemy territory, to the very center of the worship of Baal. I know we're in the off-season right now, but this is like a Jets fan walking into Gillette Stadium. You don't go there. <laughs> That's what I've heard. Or this is like a man walking into Forever 21. <sighs> Makes me nervous even saying those two words. Actually, it's three, no, two, two. So can you, can you imagine, though, just for a second, this is what happens to me probably on a weekly basis, all right? In the stroller, wife by your side, you love her, she's gorgeous, spending time with your family. And I know exactly where in the mall this is. I know exactly where. And there it is. The entrance to Forever 21. You know, on the outside, they make it look so cool and like silver. But you, as you approach, as you approach the entrance, you see the chandeliers and you start losing your eyesight. You're like, oh my gosh. And you start seeing all these mirrors and flashy clothes. You know, they tried to add this new thing, Forever Men. It's not working. I'm still super nervous to go in that place. Forever 21 is my enemy. Now, I'm exaggerating and kidding. Actually, no, I'm not kidding. <laughs> Elijah is going into a place where he is not welcome. He's going to a place where he is an enemy. And on top of all of that, to add fuel to the fire, he's being sent to a widow. First, God, the unlikely source of a raven, the unlikely source of a dried up brook. And now a widow, God, a widow? Surely this poor woman cannot even provide for herself, let alone children that she is left with since her husband has passed away. How is this woman supposed to provide for your profit? How, God? But this is God's word. This is the same God who is withholding the rain from falling to the ground. The same God who is withholding even one ounce of dew settling in the morning. That is the God we're talking about. So we read in verse 10. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. Time out. Second time in a row, Elijah is incredibly obedient. But this time, he's so hungry. He has to be. He has to be very thirsty. That brook isn't flowing. He has to be exhausted on a 70-mile hike by foot. And we can see him so very tired. And in the distance, finally, finally, as the sun is setting, he sees the gates of Zarephath. And instantly, oh yeah, oh yeah, the word of God, four, five, six days ago, oh yeah, he said, this was my destination. And so he picks up his pace. And he enters into the city, goes through the gates of Zarephath, and behold, as if we could see with his very eyes, there she is. Oh, there she is, the widow, the one that he promised would be there. But when you look at her, you might see something a little different. You might feel something a little different. 
Because by this time, in a drought, surely she is, she's frail and broken. Clothes torn and dusty. Face worn with sadness and grief. The light of life is setting like the evening sun that dusk. But Elijah, when he sees her, he remembers, yes, God must be up to something. Once again, God's word comes true. There she is gathering sticks. And so his strength is renewed. His confidence in God is bubbling over so much so that he approaches her. And he says in the back half of verse 10, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. He had no clue that this woman was on her deathbed. He had no clue. You see, we got to flip the story for a second. Put yourself in the widow's place. Who are you? Who are you? Who is this foreign man? I know what foreign men do to women like me. I've been manipulated before. Who are you? Does he not know that I am about to bake my very last cake of bread? Does he not know that I'm about to watch my son eat his very last morsel? I'm about to watch him pick up the crumbs for one last bite, and he has the audacity to try to steal that away from me. He has the nerve to try to rob me of one last moment of intimacy with my skin and bone son before we die. Who is this man? And her thoughts turn into words in verse 12. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Starvation is ravaging this poor woman's family. Hunger and death have been seeking her out for months. And now they have reached her doorstep and are tapping her on the shoulder, pushing her to the ground. Life has an immediate end for this poor widow. But notice Elijah. Notice what he does in this kind of situation. We read it in verse 13. And Elijah said to her, do not fear. Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Elijah knew who he served. He knew who was in control. And he knew that God, once again, was up to something. He was already up to something when he withheld 
the rain, when he withheld the dew. But now God is up to something in the individual heart of this woman. And so interestingly, he doesn't change his command. No, still bring me mine first. It's a test of faith. It's a test of trust. And notice what he does. Notice notice the title that he gives God. The God of Israel. I I almost think the Hebrews, when they would say that phrase, they took their time. The God of Israel. Maybe she knew. Maybe she had heard about this God, this God who took an entire people group and and led them across a dry Red Sea. Maybe she had heard about that kind of God, a God who wiped out Canaanite cities before his armies because he is alive. Maybe she had heard about a God who appointed King David and who has a legacy, a history of brilliance, a history of unity for the nation of Israel to this day. Maybe she had heard about this God. But she has to make a decision. She is forced to make a decision. Is this man able? Is his God able? Can I trust this God of Israel? Is he trustworthy? Can I trust them that they're not going to rob the very last thing that I have with my son? The very last moment of peace. Can I trust them with that? Are they, is he telling the truth that the jar will never be spent, the jug will never be empty? Is he telling the truth? And we read a beautiful part of our story, the climax of our story, in verse 15. And she went and did, as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Just as the prophet was obedient, now we see a woman obedient to God, to a God that she barely even knew. And the result It saved her life. It saved her life. Incredible faith. Incredible obedience. And it all happened according to the word of the Lord. It all happened because God said it would. That's why it happened. The ultimate reason, the ultimate source of why this story happened was because God said so. It was his word. And so I ask, what's the point? What do we do with 1 Kings chapter 17? Why is it there? I think it's this. I think the big idea, the main idea of the story is that the word of God never fails and we can trust him. The word of God never fails. Therefore, in light of that, we can trust him. But the question, again, do I believe that? Is that true? 
Is this for English class or is this a true story about a real God who turned things upside down? Do I believe this story? These few verses, they have been the motto for me. They have been a war cry for my wife and me. My family looks to these verses and we say, oh yeah, God is faithful. God is real. He will provide for his people. This is real. We moved up here, as Michael said, roughly two years ago and we left, we left some pretty good circumstances. We left a job that I loved. We left a, a salary that was secure and took care of us. We left both of our immediate families in the very same hometown that we had grown up in. We left some close friends that we had had all of our lives. We left when my wife, beautiful as ever, was seven and a half months pregnant with a doctor that we trusted and a doctor that we loved. We lo- oh, man, Dr. Essis, that was her name. I, I loved that doctor. She was so great. And you know with kids, when your wife is pregnant, when your wife is going through those nine months, you want a doctor who's going to take care, take care of her, look after her, be able to tell you things that are, that are happening. And she was that kind of doctor. We hated leaving that. God, this is a lot of unknown coming up here to Massachusetts And in what was, and even still is, quite a bit of unknown, God has never ceased to be faithful to us. His provision in our life has never run short, even in the past month. About two or three weeks ago, God came through huge for us. God provides. God provides. But honestly... Truthfully, I forget about it. Oh yeah, God, you're faithful. You are faithful. But I forget about it. You ever forget about it? You ever lose sight of God's faithfulness? The circumstances, the sins in our life, they distract us from the truth about God's character. I let the day in and day out of my life distract me. I let them dictate me. This is like trusting in Baal. Now, there are are no stone poles out on Washington. There's nothing like that happening. But today, we do have gods or Baals of our culture. We have the God of competition. We have the God of mirrors and looking great all the time making sure that we look better. We have the God of capitalism. We have the God of popularity, likability. We have the God of pornography that is so often cutting families down to the ground. These are the gods of selfishness. These are the gods of culture. And we so often run to them for satisfaction. We often run to them for our end, for our safety, for our net. But let's remember, just like Baal, they 
don't breathe. They don't speak. They are not alive. And they are nothing compared to the God of Elijah. They're nothing compared to the God of the widow of Zarephath. The God that we worship tonight is the God who lives, the God who reigns, the God who is victorious. And now we can see once again the God who provides. The things of this life, the things of our culture will die. The books that we're going to read this week, the movies that we're going to go watch, Sometimes it's great. It's, it's relaxing. I'm not saying they're wrong, but they're not going to last. If I put my faith in those things, I will fall. But if I place my faith in the God who remains forever, he will provide for me. That is the God we're, we're worshiping tonight. That is the faithful God. And it all comes down to a core. That is God's faithfulness at large. But God's faithfulness at the very center is nothing other than, no one other than, Jesus Christ. God is not ultimately faithful because of my material provision. He is ultimately faithful because of Jesus Christ, the crucified Son of God who has been raised from the dead. God's faithfulness is not shown best by the paycheck that we get every two weeks. His faithfulness is shown best because he has declared us right. He has declared us justified before the living God through Jesus Christ. You know how glorious it is to say God looks down at me and he, see, he sees holiness. He sees the blood spilt, the, the, Jesus' blood spilt on me. That's what he sees when he looks at me. <laughs> I'm a sinner. But he sees saint. That is God's faithfulness. The pinnacle of God's faithfulness is Jesus Christ. His word is best manifested in his son. And that's why we read in John 1.14. comes up every Christmas. But man, it needs to come up more than this. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is why we're here. That's why we gather at 9, at 11, and at 5.30. That's why we worship. That's why you're going to go walk over to those tables and those tables. We go to those tables as a local body, one unit, celebrating the body and blood of the Savior, the pinnacle, once again, the pinnacle of God's divine faithfulness to sinners like you and me. We go there in reverence. We go there in unity, celebrating and saying, My God, you are faithful because your son was pinned to a tree. And so what do we do after communion? What do we do after dinner? What do we do tomorrow when work slams us down on the ground again? What do we do when life gets busy again? What do we do about this text this week? What's, what's real about this text? How can we walk away with it? One thing, one challenge, and it's to think correctly. The one thing that I think we should do from here is to think correctly. 
A.W. Tozer, a pastor and theologian from the middle of last century, he said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Were we able to extract from any person a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God? We might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that person. It's a great book. And I think he's right. Our thoughts about God and his character are essential to an appropriate and obedient life. So what does this mean? To think rightly, what I mean by that is that we must cultivate, we must discipline ourselves to have a high view of God. And I don't mean that God is there and we're here and we can't connect. I don't mean like high as in, as in separated. I mean high as in to remember the character of God. To know, to worship, to bow down, knowing who God really is. And the only way that we do it, the most appropriate way that we do this, isn't some mantra that we, that we say in our minds every Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, oh, yes, God is good, yes, God is faithful, yes, God is good, yes, God is faithful. No. The way that we know, the way that we live that God is faithful is because we pick up the Bible. We read his word. Thinking correctly comes from reading the Bible. The songs that we sing are about the word, aren't they? The songs, they're teaching us what the word is telling us. So as they come down and, and, and support us in what we believe and what we worship, we ultimately know that the core of Christian truth, the core of how to know God is the word of God. And so that's what we do this week in community groups. That's my challenge to us. Come back on Tuesday, Thursday, and, and Sunday, wherever, whenever your group meets. And if you're not meeting, this is a shameless plug to start meeting with someone. Ask each other, am I cult, am I, are you cultivating a high view of God this week? And the way that I've done it, and this is the last thing, I just love opening up the Psalms. I love opening up the Psalms. Psalm 95, for example, is one of my favorites. And I read that Psalm and I remember God is incredible. Describes his character. Go dive in there. Go mine the truths of scripture. And that will inform what you think, what you know, and how you live in God's character. Let's pray.